0: Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
1: Welcome to Awaken's weekly worship. We would especially like to welcome you if you're here for the first time and we'd like to get to know you. So if you're up for it, go to our website, fill out a connection card and someone will contact you. We are in the midst of a sermon series called Wells and Fences, and we want to communicate why we are a church that gathers at the well instead of having fences around us. And I'd like to start with a call to worship. Um, in Jesus' words, what it's like to be at the well. This is from Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 through 30 in the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come with me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly.
2: loved getting to see so many of you this last week. What a joy to see so many kids crawling, running, laughing, smiling, and just so much excitement. I hope I get to continue seeing more and more of you throughout the summer. Our theme right now for adults and kids is The Well. I'm going to start reading a little bit from our book that's in the box with our theme, The Well, called Just Ask, I'm just going to read the first couple pages. This book has a lot of different, a lot of different kids and differences throughout the book. So just this first page, I want you to listen. And if you have the book, keep reading at home or find the book at the library. Hi, I'm Sonia. My friends and I are planting a garden. Gardens are magical places. Thousands of plants bloom together, but every flower, every berry, and every leaf is different. Each has a different smell, different color, different shape, and different purpose. Some flowers need lots of sunlight. Others thrive in the shade. Some have to be trimmed regularly, while others are better off left alone. Some trees and flowers are more fragile, and others are more hardy. Kids are all different too. Some of us are in a hurry, and others take more time. Some of us seem shy and quiet, while others are chatty and loud. Some of our differences are easy to spot, others take longer to notice. Each of us grows in our own way. So if you're curious about other kids, just ask. I have a tray of flowers here. And for those of you that are only listening to the podcast, you won't be able to see the flowers, but I want you to imagine what the flowers might look like as we talk about them. Each flower looks a little different, just like our book just talked about. Flowers all have different smells, different looks. This one is kind of purple and white with lots of little flowers. Here are some yellow ones. Here's kind of a light pink carnation. And here's a bright pink carnation. Here's a pretty thick and sturdy sunflower. And let's see, there's a couple purple ones in here. Ooh, these have unique leaves. Some of the some of the flowers don't have as many leaves. Here's a red one in here, all different. Now we talked about kids are different too. Each of us are different and we all bring something unique and special to the world. We know that, right? God made us unique. God made us each special. God made made us each good and he made us exactly how he wanted us. It is so amazing. Think about how you're different or how you are unique. Think about that now and maybe share it with your family. How are you different? How are you unique? And what happens when we take each one of these beautiful flowers and put them together? Let's see what happens. We're going to take our... We've got our pinks, we've got our reds, we've got our purples, we've got our skinny ones and our thin ones and our thicker and our sturdier ones. We've got some that probably will keep getting, maybe turning colors. Look at this. What happens when we put them all together? It makes a beautiful bouquet. And now did you notice what I just put them in? How do we keep these flowers looking colorful and beautiful and special longer? How do we do that? What's in here? Yes, water. We keep flowers in water, just like in a garden. We water it to keep them growing and keep it giving beauty and joy and nourishment to others. Now, remember we're talking about the well, and we've talked about how the well is physical water or spiritually it is Jesus. Flowers need water and we need water and if we think about the well-being Jesus, the living water who gives us light and love and wisdom, how are we like these flowers? Well, we're all different but we're all important. We're all good We all can bring beauty, just like each one of these individual flowers. We all may see things differently. We all may act differently. We look different. We believe differently. We talk differently. There are so many different ways that we are different. But together, like these flowers, we can bring beauty to our world. We're all coming to Jesus, just like this water in the well, We're all coming to Jesus to grow and to bring beauty. The good news of Jesus is absolutely beautiful. And each of us get to bring that good news to the people around us. And we get to do it together as we continue to come to Jesus and learn and grow and see his love and experience his love. Keep talking about this at home. And as you do, if you have the book or the box, there's an activity down here. And it says to look up, you can just Google this, look up bouquet of flowers by Odilon Radon, an artist. How many different colorful flowers do you see in that painting? You can continue to read what that activity is, but in the end, I want you, each of you, to draw your own bouquet of flowers. And when you see this bouquet of flowers, I want you to remember who you are and what you bring to the bouquet of flowers, what you bring to our world, and how you bring beauty. We are so grateful for each and every one of you and so grateful that we're all different.
3: And thank you. Let's sing the song of blessing over our kids.
0: May God give you all.
3: pleasure of introducing our next artist in residence to you. Um, Her name is Emily Stambaugh. And if you're not familiar uh, with what the Artist of Residence series is here, we have so many beautiful artists that come to Awaken, and we just want you to know about them and about their work. Um, We believe that artists give us a really um, unique glimpse into the character of God. Uh, So we're excited to feature Emily's work on our Instagram accounts over the next few weeks, but here she is, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself and her work. Thanks. Um, Hi, everybody. Like Melody said, my name is Emily Stambaugh. Um, I've been going to Awaken for a couple years now and have lived in the Twin Cities for about seven years. Um, But before living in the Twin Cities, I spent a lot of my childhood and um, all of my high school years in a very small town in the western part of South Dakota near the Black Hills, and that's... um, Kind of the namesake of my artist handle, Mud and Sage Ceramics, kind of comes from my experience growing up there. Um, I do pottery and a lot of it is fairly simple and um, it's all functional. Um, and I try to kind of capture the spirit of home that I felt in that area um, In my pottery because that area is, um, I mean to people who don't know about it, it's flyover country. Um, It's just lots of grass and lots of cows, Um, but to people who grew up there and people who know what to be looking for, there are a lot of really beautiful little treasures that you can find like, I don't know, wild plum bushes that are blooming at about this time and Meadowlarks in, in the summer um, and the Black Hills, if you know, you know, it's, it's a gorgeous area and it just has a lot of um, really humble beauty about it where it's not um, flashy or grabbing for your attention but if you kind of take the time to um, appreciate it, uh, it's really rewarding and so, Um, Yeah, that's kind of what I try to embody in my pottery. Um, And Melody also asked me to answer the question on how I experience God through my art. And that's something that I feel like I could talk about all day, but I will not. Um, Pottery is a very ancient form of art and craft, um, which is can be seen in scripture, both Old and New Testament. It's used as metaphor to um, help people understand what it means to be in relationship with God and pottery has almost become like a spiritual practice for me um, because as you're sort of working with this clay and shaping it into something that will be beautiful, it is hard not to think about (laughs) scripture that's talks about God kind of molding and shaping us to be um, vessels, and that's really, um, most functional pottery is a vessel for something, whether it's coffee, in in my case, that is the the main main thing that it's filled with, um, or or flowers in a vase. Um, So it's typically always made to be a vessel, and it's hard not to think about the fact that we are being molded and shaped to be vessels for the Holy Spirit and vessels for um, the Spirit of God. And yeah, it's, it's been anywhere from my hobby that I get to once every month all the way to my full-time source of income over the last couple years. So um, it's, it's something that I feel like I can always return to and always find life and joy in. But yeah, I'm excited to get to share that with people at Awaken. Thanks.
4: Thanks so much, Emily. Appreciate um, <clears throat> that perspective. I have been to the Black Hills, and I love it. It's, uh, it's not overstated. That was the word I was thinking when you were talking. <clears throat> it's humble in its beauty. And uh, if you do take the time, it is quite, quite an experience. There are also a lot of trout there, so that's also why I love it. Um, Speaking of trout, I've been catching a lot of them. This is not in my notes, but since we're talking about trout, the steelhead are in the rivers right now. And gosh, I love this time of year. Maybe we should do a sermon on trout fishing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, My name's Micah. I am one of the pastors here at Awaken, and we are in week three of a series called Wells and Fences. Melody talked about it. Uh, Mandy talked about it, Jane talked about it, everybody's talking about wells and fences. Why? Well, it's because it's probably the most important series we've ever done at our church. And we've done it now. This will be the fourth time. Uh, And we're asking a really, really important set of questions. Questions like what kind of church do we want to be? Like when people come to awaken, what do we want them to experience? What do we want them to feel? What do we want them to know? What's the vibe around here? And so uh, we've been leaning on this metaphor of gathering around a well instead of building a fence. Uh, if a fence is a symbol of uh, a bounded set way of thinking where, uh, and organizing ourselves, where the majority of the time, the energy and the effort is to sort of patrol the edges, to make sure the fence is intact and that it's doing its job, right? Um, and, and, and these systems and these communities, the most important question is, do you believe what we believe? Are you in or are you out? Are you with us or are you against us? Um, and we're saying we actually want to be about something else. We want to gather around a well and trust that what's in the well is life-giving and transformative it, insofar as it can transform me as I show up in the world and live my life in my workplace and in my family. This could also be described not as a bounded set, but as a centered set uh, way of thinking and being. And, and furthermore, we're saying that in the well that we want to gather around is uh It's not popcorn. It's it's not chocolate. It's not a a, although chocolate fountains are pretty amazing. um, It is it's the the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. That's the thing in the well. That is what allows, or that's what that's what transforms, that's what changes and gives us life. And so, this is what the series is about. Last week, we looked at the presence of curiosity in our community. If we're going to be this kind of church. I would submit to you that curiosity is something we we need to learn to cultivate as a group of people and as individuals. Curiosity, and then the value of questions that we not only tolerate questions but we value them and wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus, inquiring, investigating, um, pursuing. That this sort of uh, this 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 sentiment, this vibe. Uh, This energy is important if we're gonna gather around a well. So today, I wanna talk about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, you might be thinking, Micah, that sounds a bit like a dental term. It is not. It's a theological term. And if you haven't studied theology for your life or or work, uh, I'll help you understand what it means. Orthodoxy means right belief. Orthopraxy, you might be able to guess, means right practice. So in theology there, orthodoxy is really important. To be orthodox or to Uh, um, To participate in orthodox teachings or uh, ascribe to, um, you know, uh, assent to orthodox teachings. That's important in the history of the church, you know. uh, We have a long history of of finding out, chasing out, uh, rooting out the heretics among us, those who are unorthodox in their belief or believe things that are not right belief or not according to scripture and how we interpret it. Orthopraxy is less talked about how we practice the faith that we assent to, how we live out, how we embody the things that we say we believe about God and about humanity and what it means to be human. So there's this book called A Generous Orthodoxy. It's written by a guy named Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren was a pastor at one point in his life. He, I don't think he does that anymore. He's an author, a speaker, And um, he wrote this book called The Generous Orthodoxy. And in this book, McLaren is essentially arguing for pietism with different words, I would argue, um, where there is a very small number of non-negotiables, things that we would say, this is Christian essential to the Christian faith. Um, And then there's a lot of generosity and freedom that we give each other on debatable matters or secondary matters. Basically, he's saying that, in in his experience, that orthodoxy or right belief among Christians had become and often does become the litmus test to discern or determine who's in and who's out, Um, who's accepted, who's not accepted. It's like this graded holiness that we grade one another and how holy or righteous we are based on what beliefs we can say we can check off the box, right? Um, Essentially that our beliefs or our confession of beliefs become the fence that determines who's in and who's out. And McLaren is arguing we need a more generous orthodoxy, that orthodoxy need not be so narrowing that it need not be only to a limited amount of people who can ascribe to all these certain things, but like, are there there a few things that we know are true about the Christian story and can we say yes to those while being generous in other spaces and places? I want to take that book title and I want to spin it just a little bit and talk about a generous orthopraxy. Um... I want to suggest, if we're going to be this kind of church that gathers around a well, that one of the things that will be very important for us, and this is particular to our time and place, is orthopraxy, the practice of our faith. I would say it this way How we hold and practice our faith, our belief, is as important as the content of the belief itself. I'm going to say that again. How we hold and practice our faith, our belief, is as important as the content of the belief itself. So, to do that, we're going to explore Matthew chapter 23. This is um, later in Matthew's gospel, and it's Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his time and day. So, we're going to start in verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 13 of Matthew 23. So, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Matthew writes this. Woe to you, and this is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter it, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much the sons of hell as you are. (laughs) I love that passage. Woe to you blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift given at the altar, he is bound by that oath. You blind men! Which is greater, the gift or the altar which makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow gnat a camel. Pray with me. God, as we gather this morning and we think about these words of Jesus and what it means for us as a church to gather around this well, this well that is living water that Jesus claims to be offering to any and all who seek it and who are thirsty, I pray that you would help us see and understand um, how important it is That we embody and live out our faith in a particular way. That we don't just get the answers right, but that that shapes and forms how we live and move in the world. Our orthopraxy. So Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, I pray. Teach us, open us up to the truth about who you are and who you call us to be. In Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit, church said together, Amen. amen. Three questions I want to ask this morning. Who are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Why is Jesus so mad with them or at them? And then third, why is orthopraxy so important in our context and for us as a church trying to gather around a well? So let's talk about the Pharisees first. Uh, Who are these folks? The teachers of the law. The teachers of the law could be thought of as like a broader umbrella that included the Pharisees and the scribes or the scribes and the Pharisees as it's often listed in the scriptures. Uh, In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were a party. They were a part of the ruling class of Israel. Uh, They were, if you imagine Judaism in Israel in the ancient world, it was kind of cut up into many sections or different sects, as it were. And the Pharisees were one of those groups of people. Um, Their name is derived from the Hebrew word, which means set apart or, or separated. And these are folks who devoted themselves to the study of Scripture. Uh, They believed that strict adherence to the law and to the tradition of the law or the oral tradition of the law was the way that they could maintain Israel and Judaism while the Romans occupied their world. So Rome had moved in, they occupied Israel, uh, and so the Jews, the Pharisees thought strict adherence to the law and the oral, oral tradition was the way by which they could remain pure and still do Judaism while being oppressed and occupied. Uh, they had a few beliefs that made them distinct among other different groups of people in Israel. One of them was that uh, this belief in the oral tradition or the oral law. They believed that God gave the law to Moses both in oral form that God communicated this law to Moses and also in the written form that Moses brought down the mountain. Um, Not only that, but God gave Moses the ability to apply and interpret the law. And so there's this great tradition, this oral tradition, that was passed on from Moses from generation to generation to generation. It was later, not until the second or third century, written down in what's called the Talmud. But they believed that the oral tradition and the written tradition were to be followed. Um, I was, uh, when I grew up, I played golf, and we would drive down Hamlin Avenue, and when we got to Highland Parkway, just beyond that, there was a school called Talmud Torah. And I always thought, like, that's such a weird name, Talmud Torah. What even is that? Well, Micah, it is the two largest and most important written pieces in Judaism. The Talmud, the oral tradition, which finally got written down, and then the Torah. They also believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees did. So they believed at some point after uh, when, when God sort of remade the world that the, those who were dead in God or, uh, would be resurrected from the dead. They also believed that um, God would punish the wicked and uh, reward the righteous in what was called the age to come. So when the guy comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That could also be more appropriately interpreted. What must I do to inherit the age to come? That's what he's asking. And they also believed that God would send a Messiah who would bring about a world of peace, that they were waiting for that. So those are the Pharisees. That's a little bit about them. The scribes, maybe as their name might make obvious, they wrote down Torah. So they would transcribe or copy Torah, like with incredible attention to detail, fastidious uh, people. They were very committed to the job they had, and they took it very, very seriously, so this is who Jesus is having a go at in Matthew 23. He goes on. There are seven woes that he offers. You shut the door to heaven to those who desire to enter. You make converts and then you make them twice the sons of hell as you are. That would be a bad day, by the way, if you got that message from the from your supervisor. Um, you miss the point. You ask these people to make oaths upon the altar, or and you totally miss the point as to why they're valuable or what they're swearing on or. Uh, you miss the point of tithes and offerings, and then you get uh, and you care more about the tithes and offerings than the things that they represent, or that they should move you towards the more important matters, Jesus says. He says, You're missing the point on tithes and offerings. You're shiny on the outside, but you're rotting on the inside. You're no better than your ancestors, though you think you are. These are strong accusations, strong critiques that Jesus offers the pastors, the seminary professors the elders in Israel in his time and day. So the next question, of course, is why is Jesus so bent out of shape with these folks? Why is he so mad at the scribes and the Pharisees? Let's come back to our two words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The Pharisees and the scribes, there is no group of people in Jesus' day who could or would claim A more full understanding of what is orthodox than the scribes and the Pharisees. These folks had the corner market on orthodoxy and right belief. They studied it for a living, day and night. They devoted their lives to it. Everything they did revolved around Torah and Talmud and the right way to interpret it. So they were constantly worried about, concerned about, pining after orthodoxy, right belief. And they claimed to have it, many of them. Paul, Tells the Philippian church, if, some things, if, some, uh, if someone uh, thinks they have reasons to put confidence in their flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. I think I may have, t- there may be a typo here. Something of the people of Israel. Circumcised on the eighth day, of, or I don't remember. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, in regard to zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, he says. Paul was a pharisee they were nailing orthodoxy right belief was like their sweet spot but Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs a brood of vipers hypocrites making converts twice the sons of hell as they are (laughs) why well friends they could recite the right answer They would have gotten the Timothy Award in Iwana, But they were total... Well, let me say it this way. They could recite and get get the right answers. They could affirm correct doctrine and belief. But the practice of those beliefs was bearing rotten fruit. How they held their beliefs that they said they affirmed essentially undercut the very content of the truth that they were saying was important. They could recite the correct answers with their words, but their embodiment of these beliefs was incongruent. It was like a clanging gong. Paul says something about this in the the book of Corinthians. It was causing them to miss the most important things. Jesus says, justice, mercy, care for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed around them. How we hold and practice our belief is as important as the content of the belief itself. I think Jesus proves this point in Matthew 23. I'm only repeating what he's saying. So, why then is orthopraxy so important for us in 2021 and at Awaken if we want to gather around this well? Well, I would suggest to you, this is my opinion. I don't think I'm wrong, otherwise I'd get a different opinion. The witness or testimony of the Christian church in 2021 is damaged at best and hemorrhaging at worst. See, the word of the church, the affirmation of the truths about God, orthodoxy, the things we say out loud, even if it's true and right and orthodox, most people aren't listening anymore. Because the church is often the worst of sinners, they're the hypocrites. They're dogmatic. They're they're when there was a study done by a couple of sociologists and theologians, and like the most common answers when people ask, "What do you know about Christians?" Arrogant, judgmental, dogmatic, and exclusive or exclusionary. I just hosted a couple uh, the other night at our house. Laura and I hosted a little party, a little get together. Um, And uh, we're sitting out on our deck. There were five people at this little get together. And it turns out that every single one of these people had some sort of religious background Catholic and Protestant. And all five of them have basically walked away from the church. One person said, I hate religion in the church. Basically, the the people, pastors, priests, family members, who affirmed Orthodox belief, embodied that Orthodox belief in such a way that it's caused this group of people, which I think is quite indicative of a larger group of people, to basically walk away from the church, religion, and the institution that bears Jesus' name. January 6th, friends, when a group of people stormed the Capitol, for many people who were on the outside of the Christian church looking in, the storming of the Capitol was the fruit of Christian teaching and discipleship. Now, whether you agree with that or not doesn't actually matter because that's the perception on the street. These people who watched those folks carrying those signs, singing those songs in the name of this institution, the fruit of its teaching and discipleship is that. So the practice of our beliefs of Christianity has led us to the place that I would argue where the witness and the word, the testimony of the church in America, is damaged and shallow and hollow. No one's listening. Because with one breath we say we love our neighbor as ourselves, and with the other we vote for policies that privilege ourselves at cost to our neighbor. With one breath we say God is for life and so we are for the defense of the life of the unborn. And then with the next we uphold the death penalty and the right to buy AR-15s. With one breath we affirm that God is kind and compassionate, slow to anger and quick to forgive. And with the other breath we withhold forgiveness and we harbor bitterness and anger towards someone. You can see why when we affirm orthodox beliefs, but we live it out in such a way that it's not consistent, there's dissonance, it's like a clanging gong, and who wants to hear that? That's why I would argue orthodoxy is so important for us. We live in a world where the the witness of the church has been damaged deeply. So how we hold our beliefs, even if we're saying the right things about God, how we hold those beliefs is equally, if not more important than the content of the belief itself. Are you tracking with me yet? I would also say it's important for us as a church because if we're going to gather around a well, we're not, and we're not going to demand everyone agree on secondary and debatable matters, then there's going to be disagreement on things that you care deeply about. So you can see quickly why it matters, how you embody your belief, how you hold your conviction, is as important as your belief it itself. So then, Micah, what are you inviting awakened to? I'm offering a possibility, this idea, that how we hold and practice our belief is as important as the content of the belief itself. So how, what would you encourage, what, what, what should we do then? I wanna offer three words as we close. That we would be a church that lives our faith out, our orthopraxy, in such a way that it could be described as generous, humble, and free. Generous. When we interact with our brothers and sisters in the church and outside of the church, we remain committed to a spirit of generosity, which means that we always work and seek to hear the other out. We give the benefit of the doubt to the other. Even if someone disagrees with you, a person who is generous in spirit, generous in the way they hold their belief, is one who offers space in in that disagreement, who holds that space, who protects that space. My friend Jay Phelan wrote this uh, in an article about a generous spirit. He says, a generous spirit enables the other person to speak and be heard. That's two different things. To allow someone to speak but to really hear them A generous spirit allows them to speak and be heard. A generous spirit acknowledges its own ignorance and is open to learn. A generous spirit even permits the other person to be wrong. This doesn't mean that differences of opinion don't matter and shouldn't be confronted. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to persuade the other to the justice of our position. It rather means that a spirit of generosity leaves the space open between oneself and the other. The person who differs. The generous spirit does not close conversation or shut, off op- or shut out opposition. The generous spirit is willing, even eager, to hold the contended space open in love and hope that a way to live and work together may be found. Isn't that beautiful? That's a generous spirit. That's a generous orthopraxy. So I want to suggest as we gather around a well, this orthopraxy, how we live out our faith is as important as the content of our faith itself. And may we be noted, may we be found, may we be described as people who are generous in our belief. Always seeking to hear the other out. Defending, even though I said don't do that last week, the space between you when there's difference. Holding it open with the hope that there may be a way forward together. That we might be humble in our belief. See, in our claims about what is true or life-giving or of God, what if we remained committed to a posture of humility precisely because we recognize that we don't see it all, that we could be wrong, that we were once wrong before and we might be again. To be humble is to be very careful speaking on behalf of God. See, in, in the practice of our belief, In the living out of our convictions, what would it mean to bring a full measure of sobriety when we dare to speak on behalf of God? Recognizing that many have spoken on behalf of God in the past and have been proven wrong. See, arrogance would lead me, us, to believe that, well, we've got it right now, of course, we couldn't be wrong. We're we're certain about that. But humility would say, no, others have spoken on behalf of God in the past and they've been proven wrong. And it's quite possible that in our attempt to speak on behalf of God, we might be proven wrong. Again, my friend Jay writes, when we are humble, we acknowledge that even people we think are wrong about really important things might be doing the work of God. When we're humble, we admit we can't fully know or fully experience or fully know uh, the experience of another humility allows us to be generous humility helps us leave space for the other humility leaves us open enough to learn and perhaps ironically to be humble is to live and love boldly because we cannot wait until we have all the answers to do god's work luther talks about sinning boldly which is out of humility, we act and serve in faith, in spite of our inherent ignorance, never knowing if we're getting it right. So Luther says, "Sin boldly. If you're going to be wrong in sin, sin in love, <laughs> or at least your attempt, your thought, your understanding of love, and do it with boldness." So, generous, humble, and free. Stick with me on this one. Um, I think this is really, really important. If we're going to gather around a well, and, and I'm suggesting our orthopraxy, how we live out our belief is as important as the content of our belief, might we be found with uh, a freedom in our belief? Living out freely our belief. Here's what I mean by that. What if we saw our knowledge and insight about God, also known as our beliefs, as a gift that has been given to us? So something you believe to be true, that you're convinced about, what if you saw it as a gift that's been given to you? Now, our posture towards that gift could be one of two ways, depending on the very nature of the divine. If God is finite, then gathering and protecting and securing would be a reasonable response because there is a finite amount of that belief, conviction, insight. And so we want to gather it and keep it. But you could also see that knowledge, that conviction, that belief, as something you steward with open hands. Because if, in fact, think about this, if our knowledge and insight and experience of God, which informs our belief and and conviction, and God is not infinite but finite, it makes sense to sort of gather those up and be uh, stingy about them, to hold on to them. But if God is finite and I can never exhaust my experience or my insight or my knowledge of this God, what would it mean to assume a and anticipate that my belief, my convictions about God, may grow and change and expand over time as I experience this God. And so, if my posture is one of holding the gift that has been freely given with open hands, then I am ready, always ready, to receive the next gift of knowledge and insight that, turns, that, that informs belief and conviction. And I can do that because there is no scarcity in God. There is, well, oh well, (laughs) that doesn't run dry. So let me close with this. As we recognize the importance of orthopraxy and the practice of our beliefs about God, may we as a community be marked by a generous spirit who always seeks and hopes and gives the benefit of the doubt. May we be humble in our truth claims when we dare to speak on behalf of God or attempt to, un- to speak and, and testify to what God might be like, may we do it humbly, recognizing the limited nature of our perspective. And may we hold with open hands the free gift of insight, experience, and relationship with God, always ready to receive more, to expand and grow. Friends, we're trying to do this, gather around a well, moving people from bounded set ways of thinking to centered set ways of thinking because we believe this is mature and uh, uh, the deep end of the pool in terms of spiritual formation. And these kinds of people are able to live in the world that is complicated and difficult and wrestle with deep issues of life and faith. And as your pastor... That is what I want for you. So what does it mean for us as a community to not ask first, do you believe what we believe? Are you in or are you out? Are you with us or are you against us? But rather, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? And do you want living water? We believe we're gathered around it and it continues to change us and transform our lives. So look at our lives and be the judge. Is it living water, or are we just selling something? Pray with me, if you would. God, as we take a few moments to be still and to listen to the, uh, the, the often quiet voice of your Spirit, I pray that you would instill in us a generosity a humility and a freedom in the way we practice our faith. That when people come in contact with people in this church, actually I pray this for the whole Christian church, for crying out loud, that we would be known as generous people. People who hold space open in difference with the hope that there might be a way forward in love. That we might be marked by humility, recognizing that people have spoken on your behalf in the past and have been wrong. And though we can only testify to what we know, we recognize that we too could be wrong. And that we might hold these beliefs freely as gifts of knowledge and insight and experience with you given because you're a God who wants to be known. So may we not be stingy and protective, defending these beliefs or convictions, but hold them freely ready to receive whatever more you want to give us, whatever more revelation of yourself you see fit to bless us with. So I pray for my friends now in these moments of silence. Holy Spirit, would you move and work in our hearts to make us these kinds of people so that we can gather around this well of living water. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. <clears throat> so whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. and He said, this is my blood, which will be shed for you. And so whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, as we make our way to this familiar place, this table, it's important to remember that this is the table of the Lord, not of the church. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith, you who have a little bit of faith, you who have been here often, maybe it's been a while, maybe never before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because I invite you, but because the resurrected one, the Christ, the living water, says come and be fed, be known, be healed, be sent back out into the world here at this table. So as you take the bread, I'd invite you to hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you, take and eat. As you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Well, friends, uh, if you've noticed my forehead, it's a little bit redder than normal because we were in the park last week, which was so fun, so fun to see so many people. Uh, If you were there, thanks for coming. If you weren't able to make it, For any number of reasons and you're not able to make it this week um, we miss you and want to let you know about a couple things going on in the life of the church number one uh, we are doing a food drive for the lift which is a ministry in east saint paul we partnered with for the missional grants so the 16th today and the 23rd next week we're going to be taking those donations Um, at the park uh, at the pavilion where we're worshiping outside so if you're able to make it please uh, let us know if you're not able to make it to either of those days and you want to participate um, just go ahead and email Jess J-E-S-1-S at awakenwestseventh.com and uh, Jess can help set up a time for you to drop those off um, there is a garden work day coming up May 22nd. It's Mother's Day, just passed, and so in Minnesota we can now plant things without getting a stink eye from the garden people out there. Uh, May 22nd, 10 to 1. So if you're interested in that, we need volunteers to help with that. Not only that day, but throughout the summer. You can sign up online or through the Awakened Weekly. Last but not least, there's a scripture circle coming up. Um, that's happening on the 23rd, so next week at 5.30, led by Forty Orchards, It's a Bible study, um, Socratic and Method, so lots of questions, and we follow the Spirit where the Spirit leads. It's a lot of fun, so I hope to see you at that. Um, receive this benediction as you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance to you and give you His peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the church said together. Amen, amen, and amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com
1: or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awaken Community or on
4: Twitter at See you
1: next time.